Welcome to Le Arte dell'Arme, the Bolognese podcast where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition. Today's guest is Patrick Bradley. Today's guest is Patrick Bratton. Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Ah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome, Patrick. It's an honor to have you here, uh, both from your academic acumen and as well as your fencing acumen. Um, Stephen and I have encountered quite a few examples of um, naval combat coming up uh, in our historical narrative, and um, we wanted to kind of get some perspective on that, but also your perspective on Polonese fencing. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your martial arts background and how you got started in, uh, Western martial arts? All right. Uh, that sounds great. Uh, it's one thing I have to do ahead of time because this is kind of the first interview I do like this that sort of blends my, my side gig and my main gig is I have to give a disclaimer that these are my own views and not necessarily those of the Department of the Army, the Department <laughs> of the U.S. government, uh, which I normally don't have to say in a fencing interview, but I'll, I'll say those here. Um, so uh, martial arts, it's kind of funny. Uh, we could be here for a long time. Um, maybe that, not that exciting, but I actually kind of started in the weird Wild West proto-HEMA days of the 1990s, as I call them. Uh, and so there was a group of us, uh, I was living in Alaska at the time, and we wanted to do something. I mean, HEMA didn't exist back then, but we were trying to cobble together a whole bunch of silly things to make kind of proto-HEMA. And so we dabbled in the SEA, we dabbled in Olympic fencing, we did some proto-LARP with boffer weapons. Uh, we had very limited texts back then. We had that uh, Elizabethan, that, th- that book of the three Elizabethan f- fencing manuals. I think somebody had a copy of Angelo, and I think there was some reproduction of Tallhofer that we had. And that was about it. And we messed around with shit eyes and things like that. Uh, so I spent a lot of time in Asian martial arts, uh, started with Tong Soo Do, uh, Korean karate, and did a bunch of things. Um, but it was really interesting toward the end of the 1990s, like stuff started to sort of gel. And so that's when I remember like when Terry Brown's English martial arts came out or John Clemens's books came out. I remember buying them for a friend, not for myself, but for a friend. Um, <clears throat> and so that really kind of changed the game. Unfortunately for myself, in about 2000, I got out of historical fencing and martial arts, grad school work. Uh, that kind of stuff. Um, but I watched it some, from afar, and I would remember following things on Sword Forum and when things moved to social media and stuff. And then I got back into doing this about 2013, so about 10 years ago. Uh, and so I was interested in getting back into something as I got older, something that keeps me active. So I got into historical fencing again, uh, and, so, and also some Asian martial arts as well. Uh, but it's kind of interesting because I, I can see debates and things on social media or when I'm at events, and I'm like, oh, I remember when those things happened. <laughs> <laughs> the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. <laughs> right. The uh, the great afterblow debate that's going on right now and raging. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, that's awesome. So you've you've got – you've definitely – I mean, you've got the – 
one of those perspectives where you've uh, you've seen it from all sides in the in the development and the growth. Um, so, what got you interested in historical fencing outside of just like uh, like what what kind of drew you to it? But also, what um, what brought you to Bolognese swordsmanship? The one true art. <laughs> true. Art. That's right. <laughs> um, you know, I, th- I, I, I think like all of us, we have certain romantic notions of sword fighting and martial arts and, you know, whether it's history, books, media, that kind of stuff. It was something interesting. And I, I know I wanted to do something. I just wasn't quite sure what to do. And so at that time when I was getting back into this, um, you know, back, it was funny. Back in the 1990s, everybody wanted to do rapier. Uh, you know, and then since Lord of the Rings, everybody wants to do longsword. So that's an interesting cultural shift. Uh, that I've seen. Um, but when I was getting back into it, I, I wanted to do saber for, I don't know, a variety of reasons. I, too many 19th century um, sort of reads or something, Napoleonic era, that kind of stuff. Um, so I was living in Hawaii at the time, and I found uh, an Olympic fencing club that also did some HEMA. And it was run by this guy, Colin Chalk, who's sort of one of the most famous Olympic fencers to come out of Hawaii. Hawaii fencing's not big in Hawaii. It's a very small community. Right. Um, but I thought, wow, this guy does fencing. He's done fencing for a long time. They're, they were doing mostly um, Fiori uh, for, the, for the HEMA out there. And so I joined up with him and uh, was doing some cross-training, uh, you know, sort of uh, HEMA and, 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 and fencing. And Colin was nice because he, he learned sort of very traditional French fencing from a French fencing master who was out in the West Coast, Leon Oriol. And so when you worked sort of foil with Colin, it was very traditional sort of 19th to 20th century foil rather than where foil sort of gets up with the Olympics later on. Um, And so I got into that, and I was looking for something to do with Sabre. And uh, when I asked for recommendations from people, people all sort of said Hutton or Roworth, a lot of these British Sabre books. And I got them, and I read through them, and I was kind of – I felt they were just a bit too simple. There wasn't enough sort of there to make a system – and so I kept looking around, and I eventually stumbled upon Chris Holzman's book on Radielli da Frate Saber. And that kind of threw me down the rabbit hole of Italian fencing in general. Um, and so I finally found a system there where I thought there's enough that, you know, you could really learn how to do this at a high level. And so from da Frate's sort of Saber, I got curious about other traditions of Italian, sa- uh, Italian fencing. So dabble and do a lot of stuff with uh, later Italian sort of dueling sword um, also with Marcelli, the Roman Neapolitan system of rapier. Uh, and then eventually, um, although it's, it's not my focus, um, I do dabble a bit in Bolognese. And so I've been interested in particularly the two-handed sword of Marazzo. And then also I do interested in Vigiani and then also Dalagoche in terms of the, the single-handed sword. Um, I was lucky because as I was starting off on this journey for Italian swordsmanship, uh, I was going to the Sonoma State uh, University Fencing Master's Program, and Richard Cullinan often would go there pre-pandemic. And so I saw Richard with this big two-handed sword one, one time, and that was always my dream sword when I was a little kid. Like all of us, right, a big giant right. two-handed sword. Who doesn't right. like two-handed swords? And I asked Richard, I said, can you teach me how to use that? And Richard, you know, being Richard, he said, sure. And so he introduced me to Marazzo's two-handed sword, I had a good time, and so whenever we would meet, I'd ask Richard for some lessons. We also did side sword and targa, uh, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, when I moved here to Pennsylvania, I was able to find uh, Mark Donnelly's school here, and we did about a two-year curriculum going through a lot of the Bolognese uh, material. And 
Manchialito, Marazzo, lots of different things. It was quite good. And I think probably the, the, the most memorable experience I had several years ago, I went and visited Jacopo Penso School in Turin and just did, for about a week, I just spent with them the way that they trained two-handed longsword, two-handed sword from Marazzo. Really impressed. It kind of blew my mind. Um, you know, just the... And it's always the case when I visited a lot of the European or particularly the Italian uh, HEMA schools. You know, they're, they're serious about training. They're serious about realistic interpretations. And I don't need to, you know, always denigrate us here in the United States, but oftentimes, like, HEMA in the United States is like, hey, I got a buddy. I got a backyard. You got a book? Yeah, let's go, right? You know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's cool. It's the kind of wild west of HEMA. Like, I went over yeah. there, and I'm like, they're, they're guys. What do you guys do? Well, we train three hours a night, five days a week. You know, like, oh, okay. wow. You know, like, oh, like, oh okay. You know, well, I can only dream of that, man. <laughs> so I saw that, and I was like, wow, okay, that's, that's how you run a, a you know, serious historical fencing school. So and I've tried to keep that with me. I mean, it's, I mean one of the things, uh, not to be a disappointment on your, on your podcast, I don't, at least in my school, I don't teach a lot of this. Um, I do some of my own practice and things like that. One of the issues I've had is um, we are a two-night-a-week club, uh, and so we have sort of three to four core weapons, saber, the dueling sword, rapier, and then we do a fair bit of Spadoni and Montante work. And uh, trying to fit everything in in some sort of rotation oh, yeah. with bringing in oh, Bolognese, yeah. I've, I've not managed. But we had a fun session kind of with the holidays with uh, December. We had a lot of people in and out, and so I did a couple, a couple of fun nights. So I actually ran them through Marazzo's two-sword, two-side sword material, uh, one night we had a nice. lot of fun, um, so it's oh, yeah. been good. It's, good I, it's I'm hoping to bring more of it in uh, in the future. I've got a couple of guys, uh, one in particular who'd been asking for a long time about two swords. I'm like, well, we don't really do two rapiers, but we could do two tie swords. So we did that, and yeah. he, that was probably the funnest thing he did. So we'll, oh, yeah. we'll do swords. it again. That's awesome, it's a <laughs> well, that's perfect now. because oh yeah, but the the best thing is is. Ascanio, the guy that fights the duel of the century, the the famous two sword <laughs> oh, yeah. duels. Uh, we found that he was at the Battle of Lepanto. Ooh, so right. when we when we start talking about Lepanto, we'll have you back on because we'll talk about all <laughs> sorts of like crazy stuff, and then we oh, can yeah. talk about two swords too. That'll be perfect. <laughs> yeah. I love it. And that's a, it. Turns out that's actually that was the second Battle of Lepanto. There was a first Battle of Lepanto, which was a win for the Turks. And then basically 75 years later is they revisit Lepanto and well, we don't want to give away anything. Well, (laughs) yeah, no spoilers on this one. Suffice to say, it's the naval equivalent of the siege of Vienna twice. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's nice. That's good. Um, so yeah, you were talking a little bit about your school. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it was like founding your own school? Oh, it's interesting. Um, it's, I think, it was funny. I was talking, a friend of mine from up here had relocated to uh, another state. And we actually had a Zoom call this last week. And he was asking me about trying to start his own school. Because uh, where he's at, he didn't find anything that was a good fit. So he was looking to start one. And it's really interesting because I think one of the problems that we have is that I think anybody who's drawn to historical fencing or HEMA you know, or SCA or any of the, you know, Bohurt or any of the associated sort of historical sorting, uh, uh, sword fighting arts. I mean, we're 
kind of by definition a little bit kooky and probably pretty romantic, oh, right? Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> right? We're, we're probably down. not, you yeah. know, by who we are. Um, and so I think one of the problems is we, we, we think a lot about things that might not matter that much in trying to get a school, like, well, what text? Well, should I use Marazzo or Manchialino? Right, we'll, we'll spend a lot of time on that. But things like, how do I get a facility? Or how should I advertise? Or what kind of insurance do I need? Boring. <laughs> right. Not too exciting for most of us, right? Um, so it was interesting. Yeah. So I, I moved here to Pennsylvania about six, seven years ago. When I moved, I knew I wanted to open up a school. And I didn't really know how to do it. Um, I had, had some teaching experience before uh, at Collins Club, running kids' classes and running, running classes for him, but not actually running a school. Um, I learned a lot. I taught Sabre at a KDF club for about a year, and I learned a lot about how a club operated and mm-hmm. how things work from a nuts and bolts. And so after that, I decided, hey, I'm going to go and you know, open up my own place. And it's been interesting. Uh, I think the thing that really helped us is that we, we basically sublet from uh, a Kung Fu school that I'm already go to as a member. And so it, it's allowed us to have a, a much easier access to a facility and then also some nice cross training. So we have a couple of the high-level Kung Fu black belts that come to our class. And I've also been able to bring in instructors from the, the school to do things like grappling, disarms, these things that you know, it's really nice to have somebody who's got, like, 20 yeah. years of martial arts experience. Like, hey, let's run through Marazzo's, you know, dagger plays. Well, I was never a wrestler in high school, so it's not really my strong suit. But get somebody in there is like, oh, yeah, this is how you take somebody down and grab a weapon out of their hands. Uh, it's, been, it's been quite good. Um, so we've been here since, I guess we've been here for about four years now. Um, I live in rural Pennsylvania. It's not a not really a large area, so... It's quite a so I've got about twenty or so people uh, with about anywhere from eight to twelve showing up on a given night. Uh, we do two nights a week, and then we have an once or twice a month we have a montante spadoni or pole arms or some something we can't do inside uh, class that we do in my backyard or a park. Uh, and then we've been running through some different structures for the class. Our, our three core sort of core weapons are the saber, the later dueling sword, and the rapier. Um, what I'm doing this year is I've kind of changed up the format, and we're based more on themes or concepts rather than weapons. So I've broken the people down into subgroups or study groups depending on their weapons, but we essentially run through the same concept no matter what the weapon with slight adaptations for saber versus mm-hmm. rapier or something like that. And we'll see how it works. Um, so I've been trying to get a, a way to do three weapons in two nights without <laughs> rotating through. Uh, like that so idea we'll of connecting them thematically. That's great. Hmm. Yeah. So I think it's a, that kind of. Oh, so uh, I was going to kind of ask in? a question oh. to build off of that, but yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, um, Steve. So. So you're both a teacher and you've also been through the Sonoma program. How do you think that's influenced your approach to teaching? Oh, interesting. Um, this is – I can get real geeky here because – Yeah, man. That's what we're here for. I, yeah, I that's teach what, for yeah, my day exactly. job. <laughs> so I think one thing I try to do uh, – and this will sound a little cliche uh, when I say it – is I'm really interested in, in, in varieties of pedagogy because mm-hmm. – I mean, I've been sort of teaching for professionally for about 20 years and different people learn differently. Uh, and people will also learn differently at different parts at times in their lives. 
And so I'm always interested in not having sort of one pedagogical method, um, but having a multiple ways of doing things. And so there are some times in class where I'll run things pretty traditionally or pretty classically in terms of um, sort of traditional sort of 19th, 20th century fencing pedagogy. But I'm also very interested in, you know, experiential learning. Like, here's this problem solve. I'm not going to say anything. Just have some fun. See what you yeah. can do. Uh, and I use games a lot. I use a lot of games. And so I try to have, again, a mix uh, of sort of more traditional classical sort of pedagogy and then a lot more active learning. So I'm, I'm very interested um, in uh, one thing I did during the pandemic is I, I really went into trying to read more and watch more about modern, you know, sort of sports pedagogy and kinesiology and these things to see how are different people thinking about how we teach people. Because I, I think one of the jokes I often give is, you know, when I'm in the classroom with my day job, I don't teach like it's the 19th century. Um, you know, there's different ways that we, we teach now. And so it's the same for fencing. Um, there'll be times where I try to bring in something very, very modern in my approach. And there's other times where I, I'm able to draw upon something more classical. It just kind of depends upon the, the issue at hand. And certain people, certain students like certain things. Like I've got some students, you know, the sort of the pomp and circumstance of 19th century um, well, it's not as impressive as some of the, the Bolognese um, uh, routines and r rituals. Some people really like this kind of quasi-military structure to, to fencing. Other people are like, eh, whatever. Just give me a sword. I want to hit somebody. Fine, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. So it kind of depends on what we do. And I, I, I really like, uh, I mean, my, my goal is that people have fun. Uh, people have fun in a safe environment, and they feel that they're improving themselves and sure. they're getting better. So much of your work developing the body of knowledge that we call HEMA, or its ilk, is the product of enthusiastic amateurs. As a professional academic, how do you differentiate between good research and bad research? That's a tough question. Um, I think there's a couple things that we can do. And I, one thing I want to stress is uh, one thing I've seen in my, my life is um, you can have, and again, I, I'm like Mr. Like, like cliche today or something, but um, you can have some really good synergistic results between professional academics and then people who are sort of hands-on um, enthusiastic amateurs or experimental archaeologists. Like I do a lot of, for example, I do a lot of re, uh, like outreach with the reenacting community. And there's just stuff that they will figure out and do that somebody like, you know, in a tweed jacket, you know, with a pointy head like myself, you know, in a university might not get into. But you can really have some nice interchanges, I think, between the communities. And one of my goals, uh, I, I find, in, in HEMA is to try and build those, those links. So um, one thing I did during the pandemic is I had a lecture series and there's a guy, uh, Steve Hughes, who's a retired uh, professor who's a historian of Italian dueling. And I haven't had him give a lecture. And he's been a lot of fun. We actually managed to overlap. When I first moved to Pennsylvania, he was still in Maryland. And I went down and visited him. And we geeked out over, like, 19th century Italian dueling texts and stuff like that. But, you know, Steve has always been really generous, um, you know, talking with people and sharing his knowledge. So... I think one thing we can kind of do is get bigger connections. But to sort of more address your, 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 your question that you had, I think there's a couple of three things I kind of look for. Uh, one is, is what type of sources are we, are we interacting with? 
And the farther back we go, as you guys who work in Bolognese know, I mean, it's harder to find sources. There's a lot of other obstacles uh, in terms of just reading handwriting beyond just the language barrier. You know, reading 16th century handwriting yeah. is, is something else. Um, I have a yes. hard time in my own research reading early 20th century handwriting <laughs> <laughs> or reading my own handwriting. Um, so what kind of sources are they using? Uh, second, I would say command of the literature. Uh, and this is where I think, you know, uh, sort of, you know, you know, particularly if you've got people who have been able to take a history class undergraduate, graduate level is really important. Uh, and then I think one that's really tricky is to being able to contextualize something within a larger setting so people can understand sort of what it is they're dealing with and looking at. Because it's hard to sort of look at one thing in isolation and then know the significance of that. Uh, and so I think doing a lot of the stuff like the podcasts and a lot of the people that you guys have had here, you know, really some good examples. So there's, there's a lot of people, I, I think, out there that are doing some fascinating work. So like when I was getting ready for this, um, you know, there's the Spadoni project that's on um, good blog and it's also yeah. on Facebook. Um, you know, my friend Mac, Maxime Chonard in Canada has done some really great work on the history of French fencing and things. A lot of people out there. Um, I think one of the, the, the tricky things, I think, in HEMA is that we, we, it's, it's not always easy for people to sift out the good from the bad, if you will. And so you have a lot of uh, sort of older research done about the, the history of fencing. And some of that's quite old. It goes back to Jelly and Hutton and Castle. And then some of it is more modern that's been written since the 1990s. And a lot of this stuff, even if it's not always true, is often repeated, right? Uh, yeah. And so, <laughs> like, I, like I, Giovanni, I that's one of the Bandineri being taught by Morozzo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's funny. Like, so I will still, I'll go to events and I'll hear something that somebody will say. And I mean, I'm I'm not an expert on, on a lot of stuff, but there's some things that I, I know fairly well. And I'll hear somebody say something I'm like, "Wait, that's a." second, third-hand regurgitation of some web post that somebody wrote in 1998 or something <laughs> yeah. that, that probably should have been forgotten uh, and so on. I, I think that's tough. And, and in fairness to HEMA, I mean, as we've seen with Castle Hutton and Jelly, I mean, those, you know, their works are not very well-sourced either, even though they were writing in the 19th century. You know, they made a lot of generalizations uh, about things. And I, so I think... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think my my general thing on that is that if you want to build a navy, definitely call the Brits. But if you want to study Italians, if you want to study fencing, you call the Italians. Right, yeah. Well, it, it's really interesting you, you, you say that. Um, so, for example, one of my pet peeves, both in HEMA and then also in teaching, is, you know, at the end, of it, I think people forget this, but in the United States... Um, we really have inherited this sort of Anglo-Saxon worldview yeah. oh, yeah. and history, right? And so if you ask people, you know, Americans, if they start learning about history, will probably learn the Hundred Years' War from the English side. Absolutely. Right? Yes. They won the Hundred Years' War at Agincourt, as we all know. Right. So it, yeah. it, it's, 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 it's one thing I think – I don't think people internalize enough. And so you get a lot of these this kind of weirdness, right, where – you know, trying to learn something as complex as Italian Renaissance history or the mm -hmm. Italian wars. You know, that's, you know, you're a lot of people like, hey, I, I know Henry VIII. That's enough, right? You know, I don't right. need to know about yeah. the, the rest of this kind of stuff. And it, like your, your, your comment you made about the navies versus fencing is very true, right? Where 
I think um, a lot of people take, you know, the words of Hutton or Silver, take two right. Italian phobes, <laughs> for example, uh, and they start talking about Italian fencing. Uh, you know, we're not talking right. pasta making. Why would we actually know <laughs> what they're exactly. doing, right? Right. Um, and I think that's that's unfortunate for a lot of HEMA. Like I've I've you know I've I've seen some presentations and stuff. Where I'm like, uh, well maybe. Um, and I think that's a that's a struggle. Having said that, I mean there's lots of good people out there doing good research. Yeah. Um, so it's you know, but I think that I think the, the I think the the thing if I was to kind of make a suggestion for people is more on that doing a good literature review and a good context. Um, because for example, like if you're thinking about fencing history. You know, there's been a lot of work the past 20 years on the history of dueling. In almost right. every European and uh, Latin American country, um, early United States, and I've not really seen as much engagement between that academic community and these historical fencing researchers as I think there could be. Okay. Uh, and we can learn a lot from each other, I think. Yeah, that's actually, that's something that I think is, is really interesting. I think there's, that's where... I think kind of like what you were saying, where there could be a really beneficial uh, interconnection between academia and the HEMA community is, you know, I mean, if you go back and you read, um, you know, just books from 10, 15, 20 years ago, um, you know, there are a few that I've read, like uh, there's one called The Art of Renaissance Warfare. um, And there are a few others where the ideas that they have about weapons and how they were used are just really wrong you know and of course like they're they're building off of what were sort of uh the same sort of ideas right these just these bad ideas that have kind of descended through time and some of them have come through academia and some of them have just been you know uh, sort of popular fiction that has just kind of worked its way into like the general consciousness of you know, this is generally accepted so nobody's going to challenge you on it if you say a sword is like super heavy or something stupid like that but (laughs) Used um, for breaking bones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, one of the inspirations but, behind that. Oh, go. Sorry, I thought you were done. Oh, uh, well, no, I was going to say, one of, the, yeah, one of the inspirations behind our detailed, like, history study of this duel is that people, when they, when they think of history at the time, it's really in a lot of generalities. They don't have a lot of data to draw from. And it's the same thing when you study something like World War II, where you have a lot more information. When you find that people are speaking in generalities and you start deviling into the details, you find the generalities just don't really mean anything. And to get that deeper knowledge, you need to know those details, to have that, that, that fine picture. Or else you just sort of end up like the, the, you know, the Huttons of the world, just kind of regurgitating your own vomit. Right. But, I mean, I think that's, that's kind of the interesting thing too, right? Like... Um, I think that different weapons have different perspective as well. Like, um, you know, we can, there's still so many things that we have yet to explore and that we've kind of kept a narrow focus on. I mean, one of the big things, uh, and I brought this up a while ago, really early on with, uh, with Devin Borman on the podcast was this idea that did the Italians actually see themselves as having strictly a, European perspective, or did they have more of a Mediterranean perspective? And when, you know, we're, we're about to talk about the Venetians and for the Venetians, they had a Mediterranean perspective. So did they see themselves necessarily as citizens strictly of Europe and of, of Christendom, or did they see themselves as 
citizens of the Mediterranean and did they see themselves as more of kind of from that multicultural standpoint and, and kind of having to interact in that multi, multicultural world. Um, and how did that affect the way that they used weapons? Because, I mean, if you're talking about a naval-based empire, I mean, obviously your weapon considerations are going to be vastly different. So when we see weapons that show up primarily in Venetian museums that are artifacts of, you know, something that might've come out of the arsenal, um, were they designing those weapons for a specific reason? Do they have that square pommel because maybe it doesn't slip out of your hand as, as much as something like a round pommel or even like a, a pear pommel or something like that might have, if your hand is wet because you're on a ship or something like that, there might be more considerations who knows. Um, but I those think, are those are things that we can we can start to ask like really interesting questions and, and understanding the historical narrative and getting that depth and then connecting with academia can really help us flush those out. I think you, you raised two really interesting, really interesting points. Um, one is uh, I'll, I'll do the weapon one first because I, I think that's it's, it really gets overlooked. I think one of the problems we often have is that our interaction with weapons is to fight with them. Right. <laughs> Totally. Right. I mean, that's, you know, I got my sword, you got your sword, we've kitted up, we're in the ring, and we go, right? And yeah. I think one of the, the, the tricks, though, is, right, we don't really think about how people lived with the weapons. Right. You know, how they were produced, how they were used. And I think we often have this kind of neo-Victorian competitive idea about the efficiency of weapons being all all that they're good for. And I think people often lose track of the you know, was it easy to carry or was it easier to hold on to on a ship, right? Even if it wasn't, maybe it was a shorter length, perhaps, right? You wanted a shorter length on a galley or something. And I think those considerations often get left out if we're purely in thinking about tournament fighting and modern training of HEMA. I think we, we lose track of that. And I think we also lose track, too, of the cultural, uh, the kind of cultural perspectives of weapons. Um, so one, the, one of my hobby horses I've been engaging, this is a little bit outside of Bolognese, but mm -hmm. it's, it's useful, um, I engage a lot with the 18th century reenacting community here. And there's a couple of like strong cultural currents that I, I have to deal with when trying to get them interested in swords and fencing. I mean, if I'm to put a generality, most American reenactors really like their guns. They don't really care about their swords. Uh, and, you know, we were given a lot of these stories about how people on the frontier would leave the hangar at home and carry a tomahawk rather than a sword. I, I, that all might be true, but I think one thing it leaves out is, again, if you're coming from a country where you could only carry a sword if you were a noble or you're a soldier, it, whether or not your sword was actually useful in a fight might be very important to your identity, even if you yeah. don't know how to use it. Yeah. Uh, and I think these are things that we often, you know, because, again, we're just saying, well, my sword is 36 inches longer than yours, so it's better. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know? right. um, we kind of lose track of these these other intangibles. The, the other one that you mentioned that's super fascinating is, again, our, our kind of modern notion of grouping peoples together is based off of land masses rather than maritime environments, mm -hmm. right? So I think the Mediterranean, because of a lot of the work that's been done in the past 100 years or so, we people have become much more comfortable with this idea of a Mediterranean identity rather than a European or a North African or right. Levantine um, but it's interesting, you know, we, that's a different kind of way of looking at the world than the way that we've been traditionally taught in sort of middle school geography. And I think that's the thing that's really interesting to, to explore in historical fencing and a lot of these things is 
these interactions and links between different cultures and how different people, you know, you, this, well, hey, why is this here? Well, actually, that was, although for us today, that's the Balkans. At that time, that was a Venetian outpost. And mm-hmm. that's why there's this element of, you know, Venetian or what we would consider Italian culture, et cetera. Here, I think, uh, totally fascinating, I think. It's one of those great overlooked things. Yeah, and, and you know, I think one of the biggest things that we found, too, is, um, you know, kind of going into a little bit of, of depth about the Venetians in particular is that, you know, for their perspective, the one thing that Venice didn't have, um, you know, they had they had a great economic structure. Um, they had uh, plenty of resources based on, the areas that they controlled, the one thing that they never had was manpower. Um, that's why they were always, you know, seeking to expand in, into Italy or even gain new territory outside of that. And one of the things, you know, that Steve and I come across quite a bit in the historical narrative is that, you know, most of the Venetian forces were Stratioti. And so the Stratioti were from the Balkans. They were, they were mostly uh, Greek soldiers that, um, you know, had come up. They were Ottomans who might have remained Christians and fled from Ottoman control, um, and most of them got conscripted into service with the Phoenicians, and they used, you know, Turkish-style horses. They used lighter, lighter cavalry, and they used single-handed swords. Um, oftentimes, they're they're commented on as having been used or having used uh, curved swords. Um, that that's a historical bit that comes up quite a bit. Um, it's funny, Stephen. This uh, I I just picked up this really funny or this really good book uh, called um, uh, like Murder Treason something. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, about a master like Venetian awesome. spy. It looks awesome. And but it it's funny because for two points. So you you mentioned that language and and trying to translate certain things and and having that knowledge base of like a of a language it can be really difficult and being able to kind of decipher the text. And I thought about Stephen. I thought about you in this book because the guy was talking about how terrible it was reading, reading Venetian. <laughs> oh god, yeah, it is. Man. It's like when you are kind of mad about Italian and you're trying to read dialectical Renaissance Venetian. Um, but we, we, I don't think we can afford to go on that segue. Where we want to make sure we get <laughs> no, all wait, our questions. I just, done. I just, I thought it was funny. Yeah, yeah. But so the, one of the, so but he, he does mention. There, there was a, a French. There's a French source that he also mentions talking about the Stratioti, and they, he talks about how um, they were. They called the French actually. Um, it was at uh, the Battle of the Spurs, uh, so it's a battle that happened um, where the the French fought against the English and the um, the Germans, and Maximilian finally won a battle. Um, and it, it was a big cavalry battle. It's actually a pretty massive battle. It's like ten thousand French horse against like two or 3,000 German horse and, and English and the, the Germans and the English end up winning. Um, and it's, it's pretty remarkable, but at that battle, one of the things that Maximilian talks about is the fact that he used Stratioti and they call them, um, Turks. Uh, they say that they're mm. Turks that use curved swords and light horses. Um, and that was from one of the references and the sources there. So, um, I thought that was really interesting, but, um, it is. yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's amazing you know and we see that a lot in um in a lot of renaissance paintings we see these curved swords that show up and the question is i mean how much influence was there i mean there was there's a big art culture in in venice i mean was that a thing was that a a stylistic thing that kind of came from this that the the venetians kind of imported into italy proper so 
Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of questions we can ask. I think the first, the first Italian source, I mean, the first kind of Western European Mediterranean, however we want to consider them. I think when Marcelli, Marcelli has a couple of chapters about how with a rapier, how to fence against somebody with a saber, you know, 1696. Mm. And it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, and he talks about, and he, he's very broad. He's like somebody from the East. It could be somebody who's Turkish. It could be somebody from Venice. It could be <laughs> East. Yeah. East uses a sort of right. Eastern East. Uh, and it, it's quite interesting. I think it's, it's one of the earliest, at least, sort of Western European sources where you've got engagement with how to fight a saber. So it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I know, I know in particular, um, somebody like Dociolini does actually mention, uh, in like, I think late 1600 or early 1600, he's like 1607 or something like that. I mm. can't remember off the top of my head, but he does talk about, I think at the end of his first chapter, when he's talking about the sword alone, he does mention that you can do that with a curved sword. Oh, cool. um, so all the stuff that he's talking about, which is basically just that outside, you know, you're, you're, you're just trying to control the center and then trying to get to the person's outside. So that way you can control their arm and, and collapse them. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that there are a few, a few out there and there was another one that I can't think of at the moment, but I know he was like a 18th century kind of fellow. So, um, that's a little bit later, but, um, in your academic career, you've taught at war colleges. Um, can you give us some sense of what this entails? Oh, two hours. That's fine. <laughs> um, so it's interesting. So I, I, I kind of do this biographically a little bit that might be helpful. So when I was in grad school, I got a research assistantship at National War College, which is in, in D.C., and this was my first experience working in what they call professional military education or PME. And I found it very fascinating because the students were very different than the undergraduate students that I was just starting to teach when I was a grad student. Uh, and so that kind of got me interested in this. And so I've spent, even I, I was at a civilian university in Hawaii for 10 years, but that university was a large provider for military education, just giving the military presence in Hawaii. So I've basically been teaching military students for about 20 odd years now. Uh, so at, at the war colleges, at least in the United States, this will vary from country to country. What it is is it's the final formal military educational degree that military officers will get. And so they're normally in at about 20 years of service by this point. So they have nominally they would have, you know, the, the, the military academy for their undergraduate degree. Mm -hmm. About 10 years in, they would do a command and staff college. And then 20 years in, they would do war college. And so they've got 20 years of service. So they'd be, at least in terms of army ranks, would be a lieutenant colonel or a colonel. So an 05 or an 06, we would say in modern government um, sort of acronym stuff. Uh, and so what we're trying to do there is we get them for about a year. And what we're trying to do is help the students move from a sort of tactical, technical role that they've had up to that point in their, in their career, whatever it might be. It could be armor. It could be HR. It could be Intel. It could be whatever. And try to get them into a, a broader sort of perspective so that they can move on to being basically what we term a strategic advisor. Uh, and so our curriculum is, is very varied. It's not like a traditional master's degree. They get a master's degree when they're done, um, but it's very accelerated because they have to do a master's degree in a year. And so at least for us, we kind of do sort of theory and history of strategic thought. We do national security. We do leadership, operational planning, sort of defense management, defense industry, and then a couple of electives. And so what we're really trying to do is both broaden the student to see other aspects of what 
the government and the defense community is doing, uh, but also get them a little more exposure to different parts of the world and things like that. Um, so we have a regional program. The students are supposed to pick a region to learn more about a region they're not familiar with. So that's actually a big part of my job. I'm the head of the South Asia Studies uh, regional, uh, regional program. And so we try to get, introduce them to what they're doing there. Um, so for, for me and my role, um, I teach the History of Theory and Strategy course, and I run the South Asia program. And I also do, I'm a big proponent of experiential learning. Uh, so last year I was lucky, privileged to take a group of students to India for a couple of weeks. And then we also do a lot of things in the area. So I do staff rides to Gettysburg. And we do kind of the traditional cool. kind of staff ride and things like that. Uh, it's, they're really interesting because the students have a lot of life experiences. Um, they bring a lot of those experiences to the table. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of international students as well. Um, so we get different perspectives uh, in there in the classroom. And so it's, it's quite exciting. I mean, it's different uh, than mm -hmm. teaching the traditional undergrads. Um, but it has its own challenges. You know, as we get older, we learn differently. So I, I, my students are always very, they're very funny because they're, you know, at their age, like, that's a long, that's a long piece of reading. I'm like, it's 20 pages. Come on, read it. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, the perspective gets a bit different. They're busier, right? They have families right. and these types of things, but They're it's probably a used lot of to telling people what to do rather than being told what to do. Yes. Yes. We, we do a lot of, um, it's interesting. We do a lot of pedagogical socialization to, to make them into students. Yeah. From being colonels. It's interesting. Yeah, it, so basically the idea you, uh, is being able to – so they could take their uh, their skills and then apply them into the sort of like cultural economic context of an area so that they working can understand the big picture connection. That's the, the idea? Yeah, particularly in our regional program. That's what we, we try to okay. do uh, and to get them – because again, I mean, you know, they a lot of their time has been spent – not necessarily all of them, but many of them, very sort of technical, tactical mm – -hmm. Like you might have had somebody, you know, the, one thing to keep in mind, um, I mean, the Army is a really big organization. Right. And so, you know, you might have somebody that you think, well, this person's an Army person. And from the outside, we, we tend to think of military forces always being the pointy end, right? The people, right. Being the, the combat forces, combat arms. But a lot of people in the Army might, you know, work in HR or health right. management or logistics or communications or things that would be very similar to working maybe – in a you know a hospital or so UPS they just do, or something, like right? they're like civilians with great posture. <laughs> uh, right, right. Um, it, I, I, I might my next time I teach with a logistics person, I might make that and see how far that one goes. But I'll, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's pretty fascinating. I mean, that is that's my dream job, by the way. Um, oh, that was, uh, that was always like because. Even though I work in a hospital and I'm a medical professional, um, I uh, my my passion has always been military history and strategy in particular has been my big thing. That's actually what led me into HEMA. I was I was reading oh. through all uh, everything that you can possibly imagine. I was actually uh, um, just reading through uh, Germany first, and then uh, mm. Clausewitz, and then I came across a line in Clausewitz, and he says um, that warfare is nothing but a duel on a larger scale. And I was like, I need to learn how to fight a duel. <laughs> and then I found my way to Hema. So here All I right. am, <laughs> you know, six or seven years later. <laughs> but um, yeah, so um, 
you know, for our series here, like, I mean, how do you, how do you see, I'm, I'm going to add a question here, Stephen, but like, how do you see that, at least from your perspective, um, being a scholar of sort of these strategic notions, how do you see that kind of fitting into also into that fitting, like that fencing perspective? So like taking Clausewitz as, uh, as an example with the kind of approaching, do you ever find yourself using that mindset as you're going through like a fencing situation in like a tournament or something like that? Huh? Oh, that, that, that's my dream, right? That's my dream. <laughs> Beat up there. Gold medal bout. Klaus fits it. <laughs> that's my dream. Um, you know, seriously, it, it does, it does impact a lot. Uh, and so, and it impacts both an obvious and then I've been surprised in some ways. Um, this is a really interesting question. Um, I, I try to take a lot of it into perspective. So, for example, I, I think about the one of my goals in both fencing, teaching, and then also in fencing is to try and balance that classical renaissance balance between arts and letters, right? Mm. And so I think we've often in the historical fencing community had a separation between you know, uh, you know, the people who love the text and reading but might not want to do both. Yeah, the jocks and the nerds. The jocks and the nerds, right. You know, Stephen, yeah. <laughs> I was coming up with a slightly less <laughs> direct way. Let's just get right to the point. <laughs> he's, um, he's an honorary Okie now. <laughs> um, I, think, I think the strategy aspects helps us to bridge that. If we're thinking about, you know, how the mental game of fencing and how we set up actions and stuff. And I think that's one thing I, I try to do a lot when I'm teaching is to talk to my students. Hey, we'll do this. We'll do a lot of lunges. We'll do a lot of whatever. Um, but also think, hey, what are you trying to do? What's the opponent trying to do? And so I think particularly Clausewitz for me is very important as he talked about war being always this dialectic between two wills. Uh, <laughs> and I think that's something that's really important in fencing is – you know, I mean, you, you, it's not just you. Your opponent gets to decide things, right? Right. And so you, you have to think about what your opponent is doing, how you can set a trap. And so um, I think that's something that's often overlooked because we, we tend to think about what we can do, you know, in acting on a, on a lifeless mass, as Klaus said. And I, I think that's really important for strategy. So I, I think the strategy or the tactics of fencing, that's an easy fix. I think there's some other places, too, where... I, I've wondered about linking in. So, for example, in addition to Clausewitz and Jomini, we also try to cover strategists or theorists from other cultures. So we read Sun Tzu and Katilia, Charnakia, uh, some of the Asian theorists and some other places. And so one of the criticisms when people engage with Sun Tzu, right, Sun Tzu has all these great pithy maxims of what you do in every circumstance. And so sometimes people say, well, wait a second, but if I read Sun Tzu, like you can't do that to me because I, I know all your sneaky tricks that you're going to do. And one of the analogies I made is actually to, you know, Fiore, where he's got all of these plates with, you know, this is this, this is the counter to this. And so you start thinking about, you know, how you represent teachings of what to do, um, what's the counter to this. And I, I think it, it takes you to some really interesting places um, uh, when, when you're looking at these. And I think some of the authors lend themselves to that, right, when – you have some of our authors, you know, like Dalagochi and some of the others that also blend into tactical formations and, and stuff like that. It, it, can be quite, it can be quite interesting uh, to see. And then you never know, as you guys were mentioning, you never know the little nuggets that you can pick up 
were, you know, a guy who was writing who also happened to be an infantry or a galley commander or a cavalry commander right. and they'll say something in passing and you're like, oh, you know, that historian is writing about this type of warfare. That's probably something they should have paid attention to. Probably should pick that up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We still have to have Hema on a boat. That's going to be epic. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> a couple, well. <laughs> to keep a couple galleys out on the river and, you know, have so. at it. <laughs> At our next October fact, there's um there's a pool that we have access to, and we've uh we've actually talked about doing sacks on on boats oh, in the, in the pool. We're trying to figure oh, out the safety and logistics of it, but we're gonna totally do it. You know, if you lose but, a few people, it's okay. Yeah, I mean, there's sacrifices to the greater good, right? I'm, think about how much knowledge <laughs> but, we'll gain from that. Exactly. So I, one of the things that you said is, is actually pretty striking to me because I, I think, you know, Manchialino and the Anonymo in particular have a lot of really good information about sort of the strategic approach to fencing. And that's one of the things that I think has always kind of drawn me to them. Like, uh, you know, uh, kind of speaking to, to Sun Tzu, the idea of like, how do you set that trap or set the intention for your opponent? And one of the things I think that uh, a lot of people who have experience with um, – with Eastern martial arts have this knowledge or even some Western martial arts, but more like boxing and things like that is like setting expectations for your opponent. So one of the things that Manchialino talks about is, and so like, um, you know, it's not something we see a lot in fencing. A lot of times all we get is, you know, from like, let's say like a KDF perspective, they were like, all right, you're going to jump out to the side and throw your fair cow. Right. And they're going to kind of throw their cut, but this is a Bolognese podcast. So we're going to throw a falso in Puntanto or something like that. Right. Um, but one of the things that's interesting is Manchialino talks about that where, you know, in order, he, he talks about when you're fighting against a skilled opponent, you should uh, basically give them the same attack multiple times in the same way. So that way they, you set the intention in their mind. And then once they've started to give you a conditioned response, you break that conditioning and you give them another response and that's where you'll throw the feint or something like that. Right. Um, so like there are these like deeper strategic notions that are kind of like baked in and even written into some of these texts. It's just, you know, like you said, it's kind of hard to kind of find them every once in a while you'll come across them and you're like, ah, that's, that's it. But like kind of flushing that out and building out that notion and that greater idea, I think is um, super fascinating because then, for me in particular, and perhaps for you, is when I go and I read, you know, some of these great theorists of, of strategy, um, I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm kind of correlating the two things. I'm like, ah, right, there it is. Like, here's my moment to fix and flink, right? And, and I'm just like, yeah, that's it. That's exactly what's happening here. Um, now, whether or not I can get that through to my students, like here we're going to fix and then we're going to flank. And this is the idea that we're going to go here and then they're all lost and they're kind of looking at me. But in my mind, that's what I'm thinking, you know, as I might be describing a more simple action. So. So one of my uh, fencing mentors, uh, Francesco Loda, always says, fencing is the art of talking to your opponent, gaining trust and then lying to them. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I guess also like battle, like fencing, the key element is actually time. So th that's really the decisive thing. And it's like, sure, they may know the uh, the answer to your trickery. The question is, do they know the answer to your trickery and can they execute the counter in time? In, in time. And then yeah, when no, you're forcing brilliant. some person's – so basically forcing that stress on a decision maker and then they're they're like scrambled and they have to make the right decision in time with a load of contradictory information. And that – I mean, I think that that seems to be, especially starting from the 1800s, 
the element of increasing time intensity, I guess you would call it, seems to have been the uh, the path of military history. Clausewitz talks about it. Of course, Napoleon has his famous quote <laughs> that he'd rather lose space than lose time because he can always retake space. So, and, and right. fencing, as we all know, you know, sure, if you if you go in slow motion, I can absolutely counter that. But can I make the correct counter in the one-tenth of a second in which I have to make a decision? That is the hard part. Right. And that's that's another thing, too, I think that, especially with the Bolognese authors, um, like looking at what Manchiolino's very last sort of addendum and his general advice is to you know, constantly change your guard so that way you never convey your intentions to right. your opponent, you know? And I mean, that's kind of a whole idea of it too, is, is, you know, creating these false notions of what it is that you're trying to do to your opponent. You're not trying to communicate, you know, if you just hang out and code along the strata the entire time as you come up against your opponent, it's, it's really easy to figure <laughs> out what's, what's about to happen. You know, I mean, there. But but also you know I think that there's a deeper aspect to that too, and this this is getting this is a, a really deep subject that maybe we can come back to again in on another podcast. We're gonna have um, Patrick on again, <laughs> assuming Patrick. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but so maybe we should talk know, about our series. <laughs> well, I'm, I'll draw this into the next question here. Excellent, in a second, excellent. But I think, right. Yeah, uh, so I I think that one of the things that's really interesting is that that's where like the guards and why the guards are so important in the Bolognese system are so important and why there's so much emphasis on the guards. And you have Mangiolino and Marazzo's uh, sort of um, long discussions of what are the guards, uh, like what, it, what, it, what can they do? What are their limitations, right? What can they do and what can't they do? Um, and, and knowing that, having that knowledge of all the ways that you can attack from a guard, all the ways you can defend from a guard, then you will know exactly how you can attack. So, um, but speaking of attacking, and speaking uh, of guards, in, <laughs> in our series uh, on the duel of Hugo Pepoli and Guido Rangoni, we've come across um, this naval battle known as the Battle of Policella. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this battle? It's really interesting because um, there's a kind of historical discussion about why this battle is not as well known uh, as some of the other battles during this war, during this time period, and how in some places it's better remembered than others. Um, maybe the Venetians would like to forget it, right? Um, <laughs> um, but it's, it's kind of mostly sort of still with us, you know, just because of Orlando Furioso, right, for the epic poem mm -hmm. um, right. that's this very typical of this 16th century chivalric literature that Cervantes was always warning us about, right, <laughs> so, in Don Quixote. Um, so, again, you guys have talked about the, the history of the war and things, right, but this is a really, this takes place, you know, in 1509 in a really dark time for Venice, right? So there's the League of Cambrai, which is basically everybody against Venice, <laughs> at least at this time. It changes later and stuff like that. Uh, and so the Venice... And so, again, you know, you talked about the manpower shortage for Venice, right? So in the previous century, right, Venice works really hard at carving out this terra firma empire in northern Italy, and it becomes, you know, the, really the most powerful Venetian state. Um, and then all of a sudden, everybody else is against Venice, and it's losing terra firma. And, of course, it had just lost a larger ma major battle with its mercenary forces earlier. So there's this, this kind of desire for Venice to regain the initiative, uh, to punish Ferrara, if you will, and to try and get things moving again. 
And I think in, in hindsight, I mean, there's many things here that on the surface for the Venetians look very attractive, right? Ferrera is not, the Duchy Ferrera is not exactly like picking on France or right. Holy Roman Empire. It's not right. a really big state. Right. Uh, and I think one thing that's often not, we don't often talk about, um, is the use of sort of riverine warfare by the Venetians the whole previous century. And so they had a lot of experience with this, so it gets to something, something that they had done before, uh, and so it looks very attractive, right? So they're going to get this big maritime amphibious operation. They get together, you know, six, 8,000 troops. They get about 17 war galleys, and they go up the river, uh, and they're going to go punish. And, they, and it gets to be this kind of crusading spirit, right? They get a lot of these gentlemen uh, sort of... Uh, adventurers and other people who want to go there and get booty from 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 pillaging and so on. So they you know they go up the river to go do this. Now the expedition was pretty controversial, right? There was a lot of internal politics about go no go, and uh, but again the attraction of punishing the duchy and again the attraction of the plunder uh, made it so that they did that. Um, so the Venetian commander uh, wanted to have um, how should we say additional land forces support uh, that he right. said that he wanted to have to, to do this. Uh, for various reasons, that land support uh, got held up or hung by Verona uh, because of other things going on in the campaign. So in hindsight, right, you have this very risky proposition of 17 war galleys and smaller ships, several thousand men, uh, all the way up there in the duchy. And again, of course, the opposing forces are, are gathering steam. And of course, the way that the Venetians and their, their troops and, their, and so on have sort of plundered the territory did not leave them many friends. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the area, which I think also, while it's not clear from some of the secondary sources I was reading, that probably also negatively affected their ability to gather intelligence about the area in which they were operating. Oh, right? that's an interesting yeah. <laughs> Right, that's if you're really pillaging, point. Yeah. <laughs> pillaging the population, they're probably not going to tell you, oh yeah, they're going to come get you guys later. Right, <laughs> yeah, you're not going to get many secrets that way, yeah. So, um, so the Venetians—they're stuck up there. Trevisan is stuck up there. Um, now, the Venetian—you know—the Venetian government saying, "Hey, wait, this is really risky to, to risk war galleys like this. Maybe we should bring the war galleys back." Um, he put up at this position that he thought was defensible. Put some readouts on the shore and so on. And then, interesting—this is the kind of thing um, that's kind of interesting about the battle. I mean, there's many things interesting about the battle, right? He sets up this galley bridge, right? He builds it, <laughs> ties them all together. <laughs> I mean, you know, and I, 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 I'm sure there were great tactical reasons for that, right? It gets right. the troops back and forth across the river and so on. Uh, apparently, the Venetian government didn't like this. They said, "Hey, free up your galleys." Then he rebuilt the bridge with other ships, but it rained, I believe, and then the river went up, so he had to rebuild them with the bigger galleys. And then he also had some tiff with his cavalry commander. They didn't like each other, his cavalry commander. And again, one of those things, again, I, I'm trying to read in a little bit more sort of military tactics into this than what the sources sort of gave me. But again, oftentimes your cavalry is your eyes and your ears, right? Uh, particularly the Venetian light cavalry that they had. And so if your, 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 your cavalry commander complains he's got a headache and he disappears to the other side of the area, right, again, not really a recipe for, for success here. So, again, they were attacked. The Ferenese seems to have put up a large amount of cannons on the riverbanks. Uh, and, again, when they opened fire, it was, again, sort of the proverbial sort of, you know, ducks Sitting in a ducks. barrel, if yeah. you will. Uh, and heavy losses for Venetians. So I believe the Venetians lose about 15 galleys. Uh, a lot of men. And, and I think particularly, and this gets to the whole, whole sort of scandal when they get back, right? So they try the commander, imprison him. There's a whole bunch of finger-pointing back in Venice after this campaign. 
And I think it's really, it's important to think about because there's a, a lot of, I think, important things here. One of the things is you, we talked about earlier for the Venetians, right, because of their manpower shortages, um, they're often using mercenaries. This is the thing, you know, Machiavelli complains about incessantly about their use of mercenaries. I think one benefit, though, for mercenaries for Venice, uh, I would argue, is that there is a degree of plausible deniability in terms of military <laughs> honor, right? right? It wasn't our fault. So those, those, those guys we hired, right? They weren't, wasn't. But this is, you know, this is a loss of Venetian galleys. And the Venetian galleys, you know, they, they're, while they are going to have mercenaries and other people on them, this is the, the core of Venetian strength, right? So Venetian nobles would be commanding them. You'd have a core of Venetians uh, who would be in terms of the, the marines and the soldiers who would fight on them. So this is a, a very tangible system, uh, sort of symbol of Venice losing. It's like aircraft carriers to the United States now. Right. Yeah, like aircraft carriers. It's something that's really, really politically dangerous to lose. And then also the expense, right? It's 15 war galleys. So if you track some people, like John Gilmartin and others, have tried to track like how many galleys are operating for each country in the Mediterranean in the 16th and 17th century. I mean, there's a lot of times Venice is only operating at a given time 40, 60 galleys. To lose right. 15 like this is, is yeah. huge, right? It's, it's something that keeps them. And again, it... it causes them to continue to lose the strategic initiative because they're not able to deal with other maritime threats that emerge the following year uh, in Venice. And so strategically, really, it's, it kind of ends Venice's policy of trying to aggressively, militarily overturn the losses that it had uh, earlier in the war, losing the terra firma. And then, again, the, the kind of conventional narrative at, at, at the end of the battle, right, is that Venice has to then work on working with allies and partners and working through diplomacy to try and get that back. I will note one thing that's, I think, quite interesting, and this is, I'm going to draw a little bit on Mahan here because I, I think it's, it's a, a point. One thing that you see that's really interesting with sea power states, whether it's Athens in the Peloponnesian War, Venice here, um, a lot of countries later on, um, Holland and, and Britain in the more 18th sort of century and things like that, being a sea power state gives you tremendous resources and staying power. Um, right. And so you have these moments where Venice loses all of the terra firma, but it gets it back, right? It, right. Gets, it gets its territory back. And I think that's the thing that's quite incredible about the Venetian saga, the v Venetian epic, is that I mean, there's many times where, I mean, they lose pretty badly. I mean, it could be Genoa, it could be the Ottomans, you know, right. take your pick. The Venetians managed to rebuild back, uh, you know, and it's really quite, a, it's quite impressing what they do. Um, they have a lot of recuperative power, like how the Brits always end up getting get getting their butts kicked on the continent, and then they just hang out, rebuild, and then come back and raise hell yeah. with yeah. some other combination of alliances. Yeah. Again, I guess it's that time thing, just getting the being able to have that time to recuperate instead of being crushed in that moment when you are vulnerable. Yeah, Mahan called it staying power. Right. Like maritime states had this ability to endure losses and then recover, recoup those losses. Yeah, it's actually it's pretty interesting. I one kind of going back to that book that I referenced earlier, I wish I had the the name off the top of my head, but one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting, uh, you know, kind of speaking of Mahan and just this idea of like, of having that, I, that uh, semblance of, of supremacy, uh, especially in the Mediterranean. <laughs> um, one of the things that it talks about in that book is it's writing from the perspective of the 1520s. And so, you know, Spain at that point um, was under, the Habsburgs and it was a massive power and uh, they also had the American colonies. And so 
like from a Venetian perspective, since this guy is a, a master Venetian spy, one of the perspectives in the book that it's kind of highlighting is the fact that the Venetians were terrified of Spain because they recognized that they had all of the aspects of their maritime power, both from an economic standpoint and from a military standpoint or from a naval standpoint, were gone. And and they didn't have that edge of supremacy anymore. And for all intents and purposes, trade lanes had started to develop by the sixteen the late sixteen or the mid early sixteen hundreds, where they didn't have to come through the Mediterranean anymore. They were finding alternate routes where they could start producing and providing trade um, that could basically circumvent um, the Venetians. And so that's where they they really started to lose that that power. But you know before um, before we started the interview, I was I was watching your lecture on Mahan uh, Patrick, oh. and it was it was absolutely fantastic. Um, I can if you want, I can link that. Yeah, shoot me a link uh, to that. I want to see that. I will. So yeah, I want to have to read really it. I'd much rather have Patrick's take on him. <laughs> um, <laughs> Save me some but you time. Were, you were talking about uh, Mahan's uh, tridents, and um, mm. and I, I was I was kind of trying to think about that and apply that to this situation, especially with you know what um, what the Venetians were experiencing with Policella and why Ferrara was so important. Um, you know, and it's it's kind of crazy because um, in an episode that we didn't create. Um, uh, Steve and I were going to do uh, a little bit about uh, the guy that um, published uh, Manciolino's book, uh, Zappino. And uh, he was Ferrari's originally, but he was living in Venice at the time. Um, and he actually gets arrested for basically writing a scathing satire about uh, the Battle of Agnadello and the, the Venetians. <laughs> and it's it's right before the Battle of Policella. And so he the Battle of Policella happens and then he gets arrested um, by the Venetians. And basically it's, it's, he's really fortunate because he's super rich at this point <laughs> and he has enough money that one of the Venetian nobles kind of takes up his case before this, uh, Serenissima and he gets out after, I think it's like three months of detainment. Um, but that could have gone really bad for him. Um, like really bad. <laughs> the Venetians were not, not the best when it comes to, uh, you know, their human rights. Um, uh, I mean, but, by Italian standards at the time, they were they were pretty. Amazing. They were okay. Yeah, I mean, they were okay. I mean, by by the standards of the time, it's like, eh, you may be guilty. I'm pretty sure when I'm done torturing you, we're gonna know for sure that you're guilty, <laughs> and then we can hang you in public yeah. and get our message across. But so, the, I guess uh, what I was trying to get at, and the reason I. I see this kind of tying back to Mahan is you, you mentioned uh, how the people in Policella didn't necessarily have the back of the Venetians. And I think that the Zappino actually provides a really interesting case study for that specific notion that there was, there was a lot. Um, I've actually found some other articles about arguments that were happening in the Serenissima about how people really didn't like this idea of, of Venice playing on the mainland in Italy. And, yeah. and there was a lot of contention and a lot of argument that happened around that. But then they were also very reliant on their sort of external empire. And that's where, from your lecture, I was thinking about that, where you're talking about the nodes and the proximity to sea lanes and things like that, and the position of everything and the, the strength of those nodes. And that's where like Venice's true strength really lied. And it wasn't in that mainland empire. It was, it was outside. It was in Crete. It was in, you know, um, along 
along uh, the sort of the uh, the Adriatic side of of the Mediterranean, um, along the the Grecian shores there, and, and Dalmatia and things like that. Those were like those were their true strength, and that's those were the territories that they probably coveted the most. And of course, those are the ones the Ottomans went after. <laughs> um, when they when they did try to take him out, right, and that's what eventually leads to Lepanto. Um, but yeah, so I, I was wondering if you could just kind of speak to that some more because I think that's that's really interesting in that in that sort of development. You've you've really you've in the um, the kind of niche area of Venetian Mediterranean studies, like you've put your finger on one of these huge historical debates, and. Um, I, I'm not sure the historical bait has, has ended. I mean, this is something where people, I don't know. Like, I mean, as you well say, the, the Venetians themselves argued this, right, in the 16th right. century. Right. Yeah. Where should where should Venice invest, the terra firma or its overseas empire? And so there's been a lot of people. I mean, I, there's a huge, I mean, it's really funny in the United States. Venice is one of the few places that people write about a lot in sort of right. – and both in Britain as well. There's a big sort of cottage industry in Britain – of uh, Venetian, Venetian sort of uh, histories and things. I guess fellow maritime powers, right? And the Grand Tour and all yeah. that in the 18th century. Um, but so It's an important debate. case study. Yes, important. It's an important case study because they decided, you know, uh, I'm sorry to take this on a tangent, but because I, was, I, was refer- I brought this up with somebody the other day and they were a little confused by my statement, but the Venetians, their argument was isolationism versus staying as an active maritime power and that's an argument that we still have today from a political structure i mean whatever side of the political aisle you land on from a united states perspective that is an argument that we have constantly from a strategic perspective so it's incredibly important because they chose isolationism and they faded into the annals of history so yeah so so it's really interesting so you also mentioned i'll double back something that you mentioned i mean i think this is something that we don't always actively think about, but how the, you know, the world was changing in the 16th century. So whether it's the Spanish uh, going into the Americas and the supply of silver and precious metals, the Portuguese going to the Indian Ocean. And so the, you know, the trading network that had existed for hundreds of years that the Venetians and the Genoese built up, you know, um, both through trade and through war uh, with great costs that made them very wealthy, you know, this starts to break down and to change. And at the same time, we've got the Ottomans pushing. And so the Venetians and the Genoese lose a lot of the trade networks they depended upon, whether it's, you know, the Black Sea or whether there's alternative trade routes coming with the Portuguese and spices. And so there's a real kind of crisis that's emerging uh, for them and how they think about maritime power. So there's this argument, right, that, well, hey, we're losing the maritime, the, the, the maritime empire, let's turn into a more conventional sort of feudal society where we're drawing upon land. Right. Uh, and Invest in the terra firma, yeah. Invest in the terra firma. And so there's this debate, and it's really interesting. Like, again, just to get ready for this podcast, I was rereading a lot of books about Venice. And it's just really funny. I can put two or three books over here that here's the terra firma was what kept Venice going. Yeah. And I can put two or three books over here. No, no, terra firma was a waste of resources. Um, and so it, it's it's interesting to look at with Venice, you know, both because it's interesting because we, we don't just have a, a historical debate today uh, in terms of historians and historiography, but we have people at the time in Venice who were really conflicted about where Venice's future goes. And as you well mentioned, right, it, as the cost of with these wars – um, Venice eventually turns into neutrality and tries to look inward and stay away, even though 
it still has many, many other wars that it gets, yeah. gets sucked yeah. into. Uh, yeah, I don't know if they really went yeah. full isolationist, but <laughs> right. that's neither here nor there. <laughs> yeah, they, they try. They try neutrality. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, it's also, I think, too, uh, and this is a really – there's some really fascinating books uh, on this. I was re- I was reading a recent book about Genoa, and one thing that's interesting is that we have a lot of books on Venice, but for like Renaissance Genoa and the role it played, you know, we often have this conventional narrative that Genoa just disappears like sometime in the 16th mm-hmm. century, right. and uh, and Venice is there, and the and this one of the things this this author was mentioning that I thought was quite interesting is that Genoa then starts playing this really important intermediary role uh, with the Habsburgs and with Spain. And so I'll, I'll get egg-heady on you for a second. So when Charles Tilly wrote a really great book uh, on the formation of the European state system, and he refers to this early modern period as what he calls a period of brokerage, which is where you, you have a mixture, where you have a state, right, the Venetian Republic or the French king or whatever, uh, but there's a lot of intermediaries who are private, who provide, who are brokers, essentially, to provide the services for the state. Mm-hmm. So if we think about Renaissance land warfare, we're very familiar with this, with mercenaries and condottieri and this kind of stuff. Um, but Genoa plays this interesting role for the Habsburgs because the Habsburgs have so much money coming in from Spain. Uh, the Genoese then become like the financiers for the Habsburg Empire. And they also, again, with Andrea Dori and these other folks, provide private ships, right, that become the core of the Spanish, uh, uh, the, the Spanish uh, fleet in the Mediterranean. And so you see these interesting ways where public and private are intermingling in this early modern world. And it's quite fascinating. So, again, this things that the Spanish, I mean, the things that overall, or sort of overwhelm the Venetians, I mean, the ability of the Spanish to do something like we're going to raise a mercenary army in the Low Countries to go fight the Dutch Rebellion. Okay, we're done with that. Disband that army, take that capital, move that capital to the Mediterranean, and then build up a fleet to go fight the Barbary pirates or something. I mean, the Venetians are like, my goodness. <laughs> well, how much money do you have? Right? Yeah. <laughs> right. um, so, again, and that's part of the thing is, I mean, Venice found itself, again, you know, fighting with powers, whether it's the Ottomans, the French, or particularly the Spanish Habsburgs, I mean, with just so much more men, resources, uh, than, you know, Venice was a kind of like the big kid in the small pool, and then all of a sudden right. the sharks come into the pool, and you're like, oh. <laughs> all right, guys, so I'm going to interject here. We're down to 45 minutes. Okay. Um, so, uh, Patrick, as a scholar of naval warfare, what struck you as noteworthy about the Battle of Policella? I think it, it highlights a couple of interesting things. I think um, one is is that it gives you this idea of, of complicating our our notions of sea power or maritime power. Okay. So I think one thing we often do is, you know, like when we look at military history on the ground, uh, we are often drawn to big decisive battles, particularly in right. the Western perspective, whether it's Waterloo or whatever it is. Um, I think on the other hand, though, and we do the same even more so in naval warfare. Uh, and part of this is just the maritime domain, right? It, 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 it's just water, right? There's no stuff on it, right? So when we think about warfare on the land, even if there's not a big battle, we can make a map and say, well, you know, the Venetians were here and the Turks got here. And you could right. you put things around spatially around cities and other forms of geography that we are aware of. When you talk on the water, you know, most people can't really look at the map of the Mediterranean like, where is Lepanto? 
or I'd right. like to visit the Battle of Lepanto today. Where you can, <laughs> right, right? See the landmarks. Right. You like I take students to Gettysburg every year, and I mean that's really easy, right? There's the places, there's the hills, right. and then we always joke. We wait for the students to ask questions like, "Well, how do they fight with all these monuments? Do they hide behind them?" <laughs> this kind of stuff, right? Like Lepanto or Jutland or wherever, right? I mean Salamis. I mean it's it's water, right? Yeah. There's nothing. There's nothing there that Just we some as random humans, water, right. random water, and so we're naturally drawn to those battles because it gives us something tangible to regard the war, regard maritime power. I think the the battle here is interesting because it shows that so much of naval warfare at the end of the day, if you think about sea power and its value, sea power ultimately matters if you can impact events on land because that's where people live, right? right? So you can have big naval battles that are ultimately inconclusive. Like you could argue like Jutland was inconclusive on World War I, right. even though lots of ships sank. A lot of people died. So the, the thing here is you see an effort of the Venetians to try and change the land equation using what their assets at hand, using their, their naval power. Ultimately, it didn't work for them, right? And that's probably why it was also a very catastrophic defeat for them. Uh, but I think it's interesting because it shows you that sea power, the flexibility, the uses of it, what you use it for, I think it's quite interesting. And I think it also highlights, you know, this whole tradition I kind of mentioned earlier. I mean, the Venetians have been doing this for years. I mean, like, I, so again, when I was rereading stuff on this, I mean, stuff I forgot, you know, things, but, you know, they, they, they went and humped galleys all the way to Lake Garda. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and, and they fought two battles, one unsuccessful, <laughs> one successfully on Lake Garda. I mean, they're pulling galleys like five, six miles over land, right? And, of course, that's a very important area for, yeah. for Venice. Brescia is there, which is a big arms factory yeah. right. and things. I mean, that's incredible if you think about it. Um, so I think it's really interesting that we we look at this. And, and for various reasons, riverine warfare is always kind of the neglected aspect of military history. I mean, whether it's riverine warfare in Vietnam or the river, unless you live in the Midwest or the South, you know, the uh, the river warfare along the Mississippi during the American right, the Civil damn War. the torpedoes. Yeah, all that stuff. Right. Most people don't pay a lot of attention to that compared to conventional naval battles. So I think this shows you an aspect and gives you an insight into Venice uh, and what Venice could do. It, it also, and we can talk about, I'll kind of live a thing here we can talk about more later, it also talks a lot about the changing nature of technology and its impact on war. So I think you can make a strong argument what Venice was able to do successfully in the 15th century was impossible or much more difficult to do once you have the spread of cannons in the 16th century. You know, those, yeah, that gunpowder <laughs> is just a buzzkill. <laughs> you know, really hard to sink galleys pre-cannon. Yeah. <laughs> much easier with big cannons to sink, <laughs> to sink galleys. And I think that that's also kind of important. Um, does the application of maritime power onto land via rivers entail a different view of naval warfare than how we might think of it? So, for example, we haven't been able to carry battleships across, uh, you know, across land in, in many, many centuries, and our thoughts about naval warfare might be kind of related to that. How is it different then? That's tricky. Um, I think one thing that's really important, and this is this is one of the big the big theses of John Gil Martin in his book and all his stuff on galleys is, you know, Mediterranean naval warfare is he argues is different than in the Mahanian Atlantic uh, sense because it's intrinsically amphibious, right? So I can talk a little bit more about the limitations of galleys, but really, people are trying to use galleys and oar-driven warships 
almost intimately connected with what they're doing on the land. And I think the riverine warfare really gives us a very clear picture of that, where if you look at something like Lepanto or some of these other battles, it's easy to put that within a, a, a midway sort of, you know, Trafalgar sort of a thing where you're looking at naval forces on their own. So I, I think that's important. I think it's also, it's also interesting because, as you mentioned, the aircraft carrier challenge, one of the problems when you build really big, expensive capital ships is you, you do get this kind of sense of, of risk or risk aversion right. about using them. And I think particularly in the Venetian case, right, where they're, they're basically the best galleys in the Mediterranean for most of the 16th century, they have a manpower shortage. Um, and so you get this kind of hesitation at times to use capital ships. And when you lose them so spectacularly like this in this battle, um, how does that affect your ability or your willingness to take risks, you know, in the next engagement? And I think one thing that's also really important, and I don't, I'm not, I don't know the, the history of has been covered well, the impact this might have had in terms of, in terms of, in sort of the, the skill that was lost in terms of the sailors and the soldiers. Because this is one thing we see later with the Ottomans and then a couple of the other later Mediterranean battles, where it's not just the ship sunk, uh, it's also the, the loss of skill. And we, we saw this right. in World War II, right, with right. the United the States. Japanese. With the Pirates. Japanese, right. Uh, so you, you, you could maybe build new ships, but do you actually have the, the skill? And particularly for the Venetians, that's really important um, because for a long time they, they didn't use slave, uh, slaves rowing. They wanted actual people who knew how to row and were dedicated to the Venetian cause. I'm not sure how much of an impact that had. Uh, but I think that's, a, that's an intangible that's really important that often gets overlooked. Um, particularly, it has a bigger impact for the, for the Ottomans later on, again, Losing people spend their whole life learning how to shoot a you know recurve bow. It's not easy. It's not really <laughs> not easy, easy to replace, right? Right. Cool. Um, so, what would you say are the biggest challenges of looking strategically at naval history? It's it's tough. This is some kind of weird, but while people have been fighting on the water for a long time, um, one can make a strong case that people have not thought theoretically about fighting on the water for very long. Okay. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, we have some writings, right? I mean, Thucydides talks about sea power. Um, Cardinal Richelieu talks about sea power. Um, but it's really not to Mahan and Corbett, at least in the English world, uh, that we have people who are thinking systematically about history and theory of naval strategy. And so because it happens very late, um, and they're interested in how to understand it better because they're faced with their own technological changes in the late 19th, early 20th mm -hmm. century, moving away from sail to steam and eventually submarines and aircraft and all that kind of stuff. Um, they kind of take a look at history that they, they, where they saw change, and they're trying to come up with sort of rules, concepts, principles to guiding it. And I think one of the challenges is, and again, this is the sort of John, John G. Martin's big the thesis, is that Mediterranean warfare had some fundamental differences compared to Atlantic sort of age of sail warfare, which changes a bit of how we should think about strategy. And that also informs how we read history, right? So if you have a kind of conventional Mahanian viewpoint, some of these battles don't make as much strategic sense as they would to participants uh, at the time. And I think that's also important when we think about strategy, and this is a much larger uh, sort of intellectual discussion about strategy, about dangers of thinking ahistorically about strategy, 
right? About right. how much okay. is context dependent and how much are just universal truths like gravity or something that just exist. Um, so I think that's one of the big challenges that, that, that people have is I think we don't always kind of understand the nature of these societies and what they were fighting for and how they viewed victory and defeat. They might view it differently, say, than we do, say, today. Uh, so I, I think those are really important. And then how technological and societal changes uh, happen and how that's going to impact things, uh, I, I'd say quite important. Got it. So it's, you have to, to understand naval warfare, especially going in the past, you really have to put it into the context of the times and what the goals of the parties involved were and get out of kind of what you would say is the more um, ocean-based point of view that we've kind of picked up from understanding modern warfare, especially World War II and World War One. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. Um, great. What made 16th century Mediterranean naval warfare different? I, I think the nature of the galleys. These, these galleys are so fascinating. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Tell us about these galleys, I man. think I the galleys are fascinating. Um, I think it's just, it's just interesting because you've got such a fundamentally different piece of, of platform, right? So you've got something that's very people-intensive, right? It's got to be moved by muscle. Uh, and so it's got to be moved by rowers. And there's a whole bunch of complex mathematics, you know, that I have no idea how it works, about ratios of how many rowers to the size of the galley and things like that. And this changes, importantly, over the 16th century. But I, I think it gives a lot of um, limitations that we don't always think about. And I think um, that's one of the, the intangibles about military history I think that's so challenging and so fascinating is about the context in which it's operating. So I know like when you look at the galley, right, we, it kind of reminds me like when you're in college and you watch like the rowing team, you yeah. know, like you see that it looks so fast, right, because these people right. are moving this little boat. But, you know, I mean, galley dash speed is like seven knots. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if you could take a bike on the water, you would just go right by the – Yeah, you'd be like, Come on, hurry up, boys. <laughs> you know, I got my racing turtle today, my racing turtle <laughs> outpacing them. Uh, and they can only get that dash speed for like 20 minutes, right? And so when they're actually rowing along sustain, that's like three knots, right? I mean, right. It's, it's really not fast by even by sailing ship standards. At the time, oh, so sailing ships would be faster than galleys, right? <laughs> so oh, I think wow. the big once you get the That's big sad. 17th century sailing ships, right? And so I think that kind of plays with us. And and if you think just logistically, I mean, how do you support a hundred, two hundred people on a small boat that has to be light, light comparatively in order right. for them to move it, yep. right? So I they've done a lot of calculations about how much water, how much provisions these these ships could have, two to three weeks maybe. Uh, I know if you read Thucydides, again, not the same galleys, you know, they were putting ashore every night, right, before they w- they'd be going ashore and then coming. Co- well, because they're also the rowing, day. right? So yeah. they're going to need to – they're going to yeah. need a good night's sleep. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like you're not – it's not like, all right, we're just going let, to let them go all night long. Like yeah. they have to rest. So I guess that they would really need to have stations all throughout their major trade routes, places they for would. the galleys to, to chill. They would, but it's also interesting if we think about Mediterranean maritime geography, right? Mm-hmm. So the Mediterranean doesn't really have big tide shifts the right. way that the ocean The Atlantic do. does, yeah. And so the Mediterranean also has lots of sandy shores where you could beach. And so the galleys, at least early on, this changes when they get bigger galley armadas like for Lepanto. But at least in the first part of the 16th century, 
Like, you could actually just kind of poke galleys around without ports for protracted periods of time. Oh, wow. And okay. they could beach. And they would beach, and they would normally want to beach with the bow out toward the, toward the ocean for defensive uh-huh. purposes. Um, and so you could move galleys around. And the other thing that's interesting, um, like, you, you, you could do this without a lot of nautical charts, right? Because the Mediterranean is not the Atlantic, right? So you don't have right. like, a lot of the areas right. are like, what's over there? It's a beach. Should we land a galley? That sounds like a good idea, right? Right, and the draft on a galley is probably pretty small, right, compared yeah. to a sailing ship. Yeah. yeah. So there's a kind of a lot of differences. Having said that, though, and this is, again, one of the big differences one could argue, right, th- their legs in terms of how long they could stay out was relatively short in terms of staying out to sea. And so, th- you know, you, what you have in, like, say, the Age of Sail, where, like, the Royal Navy could blockade Brest for, like, just right. years, right? You could right. just have this Atlantic squadron, and that's what it did. You know, you couldn't really do that with galleys. And so the blockade that Mahan really wants to have, you could argue, is much more difficult uh, in the case of galley warfare. And also for a lot of these countries, you know, the, 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 the muscle power of the galley in terms of its uh, crew could also be converted into its actual fighting power. Right? Right. So if you think about the Ottomans earlier on with the Venetians, um, you, you can actually convert it's it's a, it's a sort of fungible force, right? That could be landed for a siege or an attack, or something like that, which is very different than a, a sailing ship, which might have you know submarines on it. Maybe you could ask, you know, get right. some untrained sailors to pick up a car right. <laughs> right. go attack someplace, which you know did happen in the Caribbean and places like that. Uh, but I mean, if you look at the other extreme, you look at the Spanish. I mean, you just had hundreds and hundreds of guys on these galleys right. that you could deploy and land as marines and, and things really do something on land with the with, with the forces so they're really they're really interesting and i think the thing that's also interesting too is the 16th century goes along and this is an interesting question because i i wasn't able to determine what types of galleys uh, the venetians had at the battle but it's not until about 1510 to 1520 Right, that you start seeing the much larger um, cannon ar- armaments on the galleys. So at 1509, I- I'm not sure how well cannoned armed those those 17 yeah, galleys they were. Definitely had cannons, but I think they were probably little small. Yeah, like two like pounders falconets. or four pounder falconets. Yeah, yeah, not basically the, good for taking off a dude's head, but that's about it. Yeah, not the big. <laughs> The things that you start seeing the Venetians, the Spanish having by the right. 1530s, you know, you've got one mainland gun that's like a 40 or 50 pounder. Right. I think flight, they flight, had anti-personnel others. cannons, not so much anti-material cannons. Yeah. Yeah. So then that, that's just fascinating, uh, you know, putting on cannons and all the other uh, uh, other things. It's just a for me. And the other thing, not to get all geeky again, the other thing that's really interesting is how long galley warfare lasts in certain regions, right? So, I mean, the Venetians and the Ottomans are duking it out as late as, you know, 1717. Right. There's um, huge galley operations in both the Black Sea and the Baltic during the early 18th century, the Russians fighting both the Swedes and the uh. Turks. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me. I mean, it's not, cause we, again, our kind of Victorian linear view of history says, old technology, go away, and then new technology got right. Right, right. Because <laughs> everything, all of history was leading up to you know the victorians as the you know the the end product of history yeah i suppose kind of with the same naivete we had in like the 1950s and 1960s united states of america where you know all of history had been leading up to that great moment (laughs) up to that one point yeah up to that one point 
Awesome. All right. So, um, how would you describe the context of naval warfare in the 16th century, Patrick? We've we've touched a lot uh, on some of these aspects before, but I, I think important to to think about is this this kind of much more gray area between public and private uh, than we have today. And so, if you look at the again, there are exceptions. You know, the Ottomans and the Venetians, but for most of these countries, you know, much of these states, I mean, you know, the difference between a a naval vessel, a merchant vessel, a pirate, you know, yeah. is, is much, much, more, <laughs> yeah. much more blurry. Uh, you know, of course, a perspective, right? Knights of Malta, you know, versus Barbary Corsairs, you know, uh, who, who, you know, wh- wh- what are they doing? Who are they? Are they pirates? Are they crusaders? Uh, right. Are they auxiliary naval forces? Yes. Right. They're all right. The answer is yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and I think that's really important. Uh, and so you get a lot of these um, different um, considerations and, well, it's almost become kind of commonplace, right, to make these kind of jokes about the Condotti area about, well, huh, I've been contracted to fight, but I don't want to lose a lot of guys today. So. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I especially don't want to lose this guy right here. Right, right here, this guy. Here. <laughs> um, so you get that, I would argue, even more so in a lot of these, these, these battles, again, particularly think of Doria and things. I mean, if you've sunk a lot of your capital – into these really expensive galleys that you're contracting, the Spanish are contracting with you for, um, you know, your, your notions of victory, what's an acceptable loss, uh, right. how you should perform that day, are, are very different uh, than I think what we think about in a modern concept, which is, you know, a uniformed professional navy with ships that are gray, that have numbers on the side, you know, right. that are very official. Uh, and even in terms of manning the galleys, I mean, you guys will talk about Lepanto you know, uh, later on, but you know, you think about how mixed, you know, the crews or the, the, the forces on there with particularly the Venetians being so undermanned, you know, taking on Spanish and other forces on there. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. It's very different than our, our sort of modern notion of this is a British ship. It's got British sailors on it. Right. I mean, you, you can have all sorts of craziness. Like this is a, a Spanish ship, um, but it's actually run by the papal states. And it's right. captain is being contracted <laughs> out for the papal state for the king to get a favor from the pope so that his brother can be made the bishop of you know Salamanca or whatever, right? right. I mean, it's it's kind of crazy in a sense, right? Um, and I think that's something we don't. I think it's hard for us as a, a modern day type of person to to necessarily engage with it. But it's super fascinating, I think. But now the Venetian yeah. navy had a lot of the characteristics of a modern nation state. I mean, they. Um, mm-hmm. They did not have. I mean, they had an oligarchy, I guess, to an extent, but there was no monarchy. There was no Duke of Venice. It was, it was a republic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the sailors on the ships, at least when they were Venetians, were how we would be used to thinking of, you know, an American or a British sailor on a on a British ship or an American ship with all of what that means. Whereas I think what you're talking about. Where they're subcontracting out, subcontracting out in other contexts. So I wonder if Venice is a little bit different there. Yeah, I mean, the, the Venetians really have these. Um, you know, they you know they really have an a, amazingly well developed administration, uh, and in, in all senses of the word. I mean, both in terms of. I mean, you could think about how well. De- I mean, Venice arguably right is the country that develops a modern, the first modern diplomatic corps, right? Uh, first kind of 
quasi-modern sort of intelligence gathering apparatus, right? Mm-hmm. right. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, there's all these things the Venetians do, and, and part of it, I think, is just because of its size. One, it had the money to do that, but these constant challenges of being smaller, right, than right. a lot of the other countries around it, um, it, it had to develop these resources for more efficient extraction of capital and the ability to turn that capital into some sort of coercive instrument, uh, both internally and then externally. Uh, I think it's pretty amazing with Venice. I mean, it really pushes the limits of what a Renaissance state uh, was able to do uh, until you get to, like, again, simplification, until you get to really about, again, Habsburg Spain also does something similar, particularly under Philip II, but almost you don't get that kind of level of organization. It's not really surpassed until you get to really Bourbon France, the 1600s. It's quite amazing. And and again, you've all probably heard those stories, right? Whenever um, big, important people would visit Venice, they would show, how fast can we build a galley at the arsenal? Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of a thing. It always reminds me of those 80s movies. How fast could you build a Toyota? (laughs) You could totally (laughs) see the Venetian (laughs) montage if they were making (laughs) movies with the 80s music in the background. So, so it's 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 We're really impressive. Have, uh, the vacuum cleaner debate. <laughs> I think it's gonna pop in and be like, <laughs> yeah. awesome. All right. Um. So now moving away from ships a bit in naval warfare, what was the geopolitical and economic changes going on at the time that influenced the Battle of Polisella? Um. I, I think we we touched a little bit on them earlier, but I think it's really important how the Italian wars really changed this. Mediterranean world, and it's not just the Italian wars. I'd also, you know, the rise of the Ottomans as well, uh, and the discovery of the New World. I mean, individually, any of these changes would be massive, right? Right. But unfortunately for people in the 16th century, it happens all at the same time, right? Which is kind of crazy if you, if you think about it. May you be uh, cursed to live in interesting times. Yes, yes. Um, and so you you see these these countervailing pushes and pulls. Uh, going around that I, I think are really important and how what eventually what would be larger states, powerful states like Venice are really surpassed by whether it is France or the Ottomans or by the uh, the Spanish Habsburgs is quite amazing at the time. And I think I think it's also it's really tricky, uh, you know, for us because we, we have this kind of strange mingling, right? So, you know, Maximilian, the Holy Roman Empire comes in but then because of dynastic succession, all of a sudden, you know, the Holy Roman Empire in Spain is together, and then eventually Portugal gets added to that. Right. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, you, you have things that are, that are kind of weird, uh, you know, from a modern perspective. I think also interesting, you can see um, this development of, um, you know, this kind of uneasy mixture of both this earlier, if I'm permitted to use that term, earlier tradition of sort of the crusading, you know, this... Uh, you know, us, this religion against that religion. At the same time, you have tremendous pragmatism. I mean, and I think this is one of the stories that often gets overlooked. I mean, this alliance between Valois France and the Ottoman Empire, <laughs> right, to, to, fight yeah. against the, to fight against the Habsburgs is, is, is kind of, you know, it's 100 years bending. earlier. You know, yeah. it's, it's kind of crazy, right? Yeah. Uh, but you see this yeah. pragmatism of, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And I, I think also just some of the, I mean, all the crazy warrior popes, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, the papal states at yeah. this time, Julius and so on, and the Borgias. I mean, it's a really heady time period. It's, it's, I mean, it's almost, um, there's this old um, uh, proverb from the Caucasus that um, said, that, oh, got, got a dog. Um, 
old proverb from the Caucasus that said why the Caucasus was always so full of violence is that when God was had his salt and pepper shaker and dropping people along the planet, they dropped and too many people fell out in a small area in the Caucasus. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and I wonder if that kind of analogy works for 16th century Mediterranean. I mean, there's just so much going on, right? So much, and competing, oh, yeah. so much competition for such small areas. Oh, yeah. That's that's Italy to a T. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. That's um, a lot of my uh, current research is kind of put me on this bent of, of looking a lot at, at Charles V and the succession uh, between Maximilian to Charles because um, uh, Manchiolino's patron, uh, Luis Fernandez de Cordoba, um, mm. was actually a part of the Spanish court for a while. So he went to uh, Flanders and was a part of young Charles's court and escorted him to Spain and escorted him into power, basically. And so he's a big part of that story. And I've been doing a lot of research on that lately. Um, and it's it's crazy because, you know, one of the, I think one of the, at this, by the time this episode comes out, we'll have released our, our part two of episode three. So I can talk about the siege of Padua, but one of the things that uh, Stephen and I noticed right away about the siege of Padua is that it feels like Padua is the death of chivalry and the chivalric notion, where you have Maximilian, who you know calls himself the uh, you know the the last the last knight, and you know I mean that's a, a real a moniker that he really believed in, and he wrote books to Charles that he gave him as a young boy, like uh, the Wise King or the White King, and then uh, the right. There, I'm gonna totally mispronounce this because I don't know how to speak German. But there, Dunk, uh, which is basically his own chivalric poem that he wrote about himself, um, you know, and he he passes these on to Charles. But one of the the ideas that he passed on to Charles was the idea that the Holy Roman Empire's objective should always be to crusade, like they should, and that that's Charles spent his entire life trying to build a crusade. And of course, it never never actually came to anything. Right. But that notion, that this sort of like antiquated notion versus somebody like Francis and Francis's notion that maybe instead of trying to fight against the Turk, I can use the Turks as this like this this pawn or not necessarily a pawn because they're the Turks were quite powerful at that point. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely More powerful on the rise. Than France. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, you know, whether Francis believed that or not, you know, who knows, but, um, you know, it, it sort of played out throughout the historical narrative and it's kind of one of those things. It's just, you know, it's like you see these shifting sands and, and you think that you understand what the perspective is. And of course, people at the time are sitting there and theorizing about what, what their perspective is and whether or not things are going to progress in a certain way. And of course we can look back with that, that 2020 vision of how things actually play out, but you know, those mentalities and kind of seeing where I think Venice, even though I think Venice would have agreed with uh, the idea of a crusade had Charles like successfully been able to do it because they would have financed it and they probably would have been the ones supplying the ships as they always had. <laughs> um, but <laughs> so that would, they would have loved that. Um, plus it would have given them an opportunity to take more possession of uh, areas in the Mediterranean because, you know, I mean, they were, they were perfectly happy when Ferdinand started to go after the Barbary pirates. They were like, yeah, let's do this. Come on. We would love to have uh, somewhere in Tunisia, please. Could we have something in Northern <laughs> Africa? That would be like perfect. Cause then, you know, they could really start pinching things off. Um, 
outside of uh, just having, you know, this base in Malta that they didn't have control of. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, one, what? like the reality of the situation, but also like people's perspective in that situation and whether they're not like, whether they're at that contemporary mindset or whether they're just kind of like living in this kind of antiquated ideas. Um, you know, I, I think it's really interesting um, because I think, and again, I'm, this is just sort of drawing upon other people's debates that I've, I've come across. But I think one thing that's interesting in the, in the 16th century is you have this, again, this period of change that we're talking about. So on the one hand, you have, you can still see people who value this chivalric idea. And you think about how much we mentioned Furioso earlier. I mean, this huge outpouring of chivalric literature and poems uh, in the 16th century. I mean, so much so that Cervantes writes like, you know, one of the best books in the history of literature, right. railing against how bad this literature is and what it does to you, right? Um, yeah. And so it's interesting. Like One of the things when I had uh, Tom Foy gave a lecture for, for my school, one of the things, an argument he made was that in the 16th century, this was almost like the Marvel franchise, right, of, of people. Like, <laughs> I love it. The literature was like superhero movies, it. right? It talk, showed you this ideal and everybody was nuts about it and – Maybe it warps their viewpoint a little bit. But I think it's, it's interesting because these coexist, right? So at the same time, like, Francois I is, you know, he's doing his, you know, this very modern realpolitik alliance with the Ottomans. He also does cultivate, right, that, like, just like Maximilian, just like Henry VIII, you know, they are these manly men of chivalry, right? And we think about the important yep. role of the French heavy cavalry, the gendarme, um, you know, it's still, it stays. And in France, even in particular, um, the Royal Army during the religious wars later on in the 16th century, mm-hmm. I mean, relied heavily upon this, what was going in other places in Europe, sort of a, a, a form of, of warfare, a form of soldiers that was sort of dying out, so to right. speak. Um, they, they use a lot of gendarmes during the Civil War. And so you have this kind of mix, right, where people are, are looking around, they've got these older sort of notions of themselves and their values in this new place. And one could argue, too, that as these values, these older values are threatened, right, they become somewhat more rigid and much more developed, right? You, you see the order of all of these different knighthoods and things that get going in the 16th century as people are yeah. trying to cling on to right. know, these, these The values, more outmoded right? it becomes, the more people, like, double and triple and quadruple <laughs> down on it. right. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was I, I was into LPs before they were cool, right? Right, <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Now, in terms of technology, oh, sorry. No, go in terms ahead. of technology at the time, how was it changing? We've talked about society. Um, you know, the the cannons are a big one uh, in terms of the in terms of both the naval warfare and the land warfare. So, I think one thing that doesn't often get covered, right, is. Um, you know, what it was like when the French came into Italy with their artillery that they had developed over the course right. of the Hundred Years' War. Uh, and then, moreover, on the other side of the Mediterranean, what the what the Ottomans were able to develop in terms of siege artillery. And I think that really changed, and you can see this development of, you know, what would later be called the Trace Italian fortresses and things like that. So I think it's really important. I think one, one part that gets overlooked, uh, I think, is is that when we look at we see things in the 16th century that look very familiar to later time periods. So the development of the sailing ship with the broadsides right. or the star fort, the Vauban style, uh, Trace Italian star forts. 
But one thing I think that's important that some of the uh, historians have remarked upon is, again, it's dangerous to look at something in like 1530 or 1540, see things that look familiar to 1650 or 1750, and then think they're the same. They're the same, right. And so the problem is, is just how expensive and rare artillery was, particularly in the Mediterranean in the early part of the 16th century, until they get to that change where they can make cannons out of iron and it's cheaper, which doesn't happen until about uh, 1600. And so I think that's one of the, the kind of missing links when we look at, at understanding a lot of the, the warfare, is while cannons are important and they're really big, they're also very expensive. Very expensive. Uh, people want to lose them. Bronze. Yeah. And, and also people yeah. want, it's one of the big goals, right, is not necessarily to sink enemy ships, but to capture them, right, so right. That you can get the cannons, right? right. <laughs> uh, right. Same thing in fortresses. Uh, and so that, I think that's something that's interesting, the changing technology. There's also this, we touched a little bit on it earlier, but you also see this increasing size of galleys uh, by the second half of the 16th century. And they start experimenting with multiple rowers and things like that. Uh, of course, it makes things much more expensive. And then some people who do much better quantitative work than I would ever do have traced like the price of ship's biscuit over time <laughs> and how that impacted campaigns. So, I mean, there's a lot of different things happening t- technologically. Uh, and I think a lot of them, whether it's the Ottomans, I mean, also the Spanish at the same time and the Spanish are in the process in the 16th century of developing some of the most capable land forces uh, during right. the 16th century. Uh, developing the musket, the tercio, all this kind of stuff is all sort of developing uh, in this sort of heady mix. So it's it's. I I just think just me, this is this is where my like inner twelve year old comes out. Um, I just think it's so fascinating. You think about these battles, and you're like, I mean, it's almost like it's almost like your twelve year old is like designing like a game. What would you like? I want a knight. All right, a knight in armor. Got it. Do you have a cannon too? I want a cannon. Okay. Yeah. All right. Could you have like a cool, like a guy with like a recurve bow and a scimitar? <laughs> yeah, we can do that too. Yeah. What else would be cool in this battle? How about like some like lance connects with like puffy pants? Okay. You can do, I mean, you could see all of that like yeah. in any given 16th century military. <laughs> They're probably also doing some sort of sorcery <laughs> on behalf of the army and divination as well. I haven't gotten <laughs> proof yes. of that, but we have a, a a revolt in a city that essentially started over a statue that people thought had been weeping, which, you know, maybe it did. I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's, I think one of the fascinating things is, yeah, that, that combination of the old and the modern all kind of together. Uh, one thing I thought that um, was interesting in doing research on the Battle of Policella was the improvement of uh, powder milling technology, yep. especially in terms of consistency how would how would being able to make consistent powder affect the accuracy of uh, a cannon um there's a whole there's an interesting study about um powder and firearms development in the 16th century and so okay the the powder gets long story short um involving lots of physics that i don't understand and chemistry that i don't understand because i was a humanities major um (laughs) there's this development and increasing efficiency in powder and so people were able to, to, to get more performance in terms of accuracy and also in terms uh-huh. of range. And the other big thing on the flip side is people are able to build cheaper and lighter, basically, you know, projectile devices, right? So you're able to build things, uh, whether it's cannons or handguns or muskets, you're able to build them in sort of lighter and much more affordable and then also much more portable 
devices. Again, whether it's a handgun for a person or cannon right. for a galley yeah, or for a fortress. Yeah. And so you get a lot of interesting um, developments. So, for example, our conventional narrative about the end of the night, right, is normally some combination of Swiss pikemen and the musket. And English longbowmen. Right. And the, oh, and the English, English longbowmen. Don't forget the English longbowmen. Don't forget them. Uh, so we normally, if, again, if you just pick up a book, that's the end of the night was the longbowmen or the Swiss pike. I mean, there's been an argument past 20 or so years in 16th century history that actually it was the pistolero that got rid of the knight. That over the course of the late 16th century, when he got to the melee after they did the initial charge, you know, uh, a lighter a lighter but still armored horseman with two or three pistols and a sword uh, ended up doing better in a cavalry melee than a knight with a sword. <laughs> right? right. And again, it, yeah. it, it, that, that's not universally agreed upon, uh, but just, you know, the event of you know, relatively light wheel lock pistols changed cavalry engagements. Uh, and you get to the whole caracol mm-hmm. and all that in the 17th century. So I, I think the, the development of the, the powder is really important. The other thing that also doesn't get a lot of attention is the shift of projectiles, right? Because originally right. they had these, you know, hand, hand chiseled <laughs> stone right. cannonballs. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. You can yeah. imagine, I mean, I mean, again, that uh, to me, I, I actually, every time I read that, I'm still kind of boggled, right? There'd be like, well, we've got to make some. We got to make some things to shoot at the, the, the you know, the, the fortress or the ship. Yeah. Let's get some guys chipping some cannon. You just imagine, you know. <laughs> I mean, we got one cannon at the at the siege of Padua. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, Joshua, but I think it had a 60 centimeter barrel. So yeah. that I mean, I think that means it's firing like a 500 pound. I'm assuming yeah. it's a stone projectile because it'd right. be prohibitively expensive it was. otherwise. Yeah. yeah. So it, it it can't have been shooting it very fast, but just the idea, like, all right, roll that big rock into that barrel, <laughs> set it off. And so I think it, that's when they they could only fire like three times a day. Yeah, um, something like that. Yeah. It's the Schwerer yeah. Gustav of the fifteen hundreds. <laughs> yeah. All right. And its name is Wake Up Call. <laughs> wake Up Call. That's right. And they could hear it in Venice when it was firing, which is just awesome. Yeah. Uh, now, going back to the boats, um, how did the navies or ships of the time differ from one another? Oh, interesting. Um, a lot of this is um, – this information, I think, has been really painstakingly brought up. And I, my own view is that I think some of this will change the more mm-hmm. research that people have been doing. Uh, and so you can draw some kind of uh, generalities, but I think – I think a lot of this research is still changing. Like, I, as I was mentioned, I, I read a, a book about Genoa just the other week that changed some of my views uh, yeah. on this. But roughly speaking, right, as we've kind of mentioned before, I mean, the Venetians, you know, they've got really good galleys. Uh, and each country, and I know this sounds kind of ob- like the Captain Obvious military history comment, but I, I think one problem we have is like, like you pull up Wikipedia and you're like, what does a battleship look like? And it'll pick up these, oh, this is the Bismarck, and this is the Amato. And you can do the same with galleys. You'd actually, the, the right. Wikipedia page for galley is quite quite well done, actually, I was going to say. Um, I could just read it to you for this. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but <laughs> but um, we think of a galley, and the galley looks the same. But when countries develop platforms, right, or military bodies, they have specific uses in mind right. that shape a bit how, how they work. So, for example, um, like if you're this, I've got outside of the period for a second. You know, when the British are building battleships and battlecruisers for the World Wars, the British have an empire they have to protect. Right. So they have to build ships that have the ability for people to sail comfortably for long periods of time through all different types of climates. Right. right? And so that affects, to a degree, their combat efficiency when they fight. 
When the Germans are building their high seas fleet for World War One, they have some colonies, but they're not that dedicated to sort of protecting them. Right. They're interested in combat efficiency, like how yeah. how well can our ships fight? Right. Um, they don't have to think about long range imperial policing the way the British do. So you also see that in the Mediterranean. So for the Venetians, right, they have to have ships uh, that move fastly, uh, that are, are with the rowers. They have to have ships that they're okay with having less men on them than most of the other their competitors. And again, their idea for their ships, right, is maintaining their sort of sea lines of communication to their overseas territories, right? So right. If something happens, the Ottomans or whoever is laying siege, rush a bunch of ships there, win the battle decisively and quickly, and probably win the battle through artillery overboarding if they can, right? And the Venetians, some people have speculated, most of the times when these galleys were fighting, like they weren't like parked and you know, shooting right. at each other, right? They would get up point blank, shoot, and then board, right? Or somebody sank. Some people have speculated the Venetians had the capability to actually shoot a volley or two at longer range uh, that ah, nobody else was able to at, that's the, interesting. at, at the time. Um, and so the, the Venetians were always pushing, were the only country that were pushing long range artillery fire from galleys. How much that was used, there's some speculation about that. Uh, but we can see Venetian, you know, innovation with things like the, the famous galley asses at, at Lepanto, uh, where they were doing some different things. In contrast, you look at like the Spanish, right? And the Spanish ships, they don't sail, they, they sail quicker than the Venetian sail, but they don't move under oars as fast or as maneuverable as the Venetians. But the Spanish, they put lots of men and lots of guns on their ships, right? right. So their combat power uh, was quite impressive, uh, particularly as the 16th century goes along and more and more the Spanish are able to spend a lot of money, uh, both on men and on better cannons. And so the Spanish are able to, to do a lot of things uh, in terms of combat power. The more difficulty is, is for the long-range stuff, that's more of a challenge for the Spanish. Ottomans, in contrast, right, they've got very maneuverable ships. They're somewhere in between the Spanish and the Venetians in terms of sailing and, and versus rowing. Uh, but in many ways, the, the, the Ottomans are interesting because the Ottomans are kind of what we would term under modern parlance, a power projection fleet, right? So they're interested in taking large amounts of men and cannons. Taking a and, place. And taking a place. Like whether, right. you know, whether that's whether it's an attempt on Malta, whether that's Cyprus, uh, Rhodes, all these places. I mean, you see this development in the 16th century, a very, very ambitious ability to project power. Uh, with the Ottoman with, with the Ottoman fleets, so it's quite impressive. And, and then you've got people in between. Um, some of our work here is a little bit less clear, but probably a lot of the Italian states that were working with the Spanish, their galleys seem to reflect more of the Spanish design. Uh, and then you've also got the Barbary corsairs who've got their own, and the Maltese uh, as well, uh, who've got s different galley designs. But I think it's a really important point that often gets overlooked. People are going to build structures for their own needs. And so while it might both look like galleys, the galleys will actually have some slight differences that make the, that are significant differences. That's a good and really interesting point, how it is a platform for an, a country's needs. And so it will differ on that. That's, wow. Cool. Yeah. Great. Uh, oh, That's also, awesome. since this came up, we talked about Cervantes a lot and Lepanto a lot. You guys may know this already, but I stumbled across the fact that Cervantes was at Lepanto. Yes, I think it's just going to be Very a nice. ton of fun. Oh yeah, that we uh, well also two other little bits that we we kind of brought up um, that are going to become relevant as we continue in our timeline here. Um, 
Ugo Pepole. Uh, so you mentioned Genoa, and Ugo Pepole is going to become basically the reason why Genoa stays uh, independent and br- helps bring the uh, the Doria back into power in, uh, in Genoa. <laughs> uh, so that's going to happen in I our timeline. Into that. Yeah. Awesome. And then, uh, well, oh, yeah. What's the other one? Yeah, the other one uh, was that. Um, what was the other one? Oh man, I lost it. <laughs> ah, I hate that man. I got I got too too caught up on Ugo Pepoli. <laughs> well, that's okay. I'll let All him right. go. Well, we're over the two hour mark here, okay. so I think Patrick has yeah. stuff he has to get on to. Well, Patrick, heads, yeah. thank you so much for yeah. coming on. This was very enlightening, man. Oh, thank you for having. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, it was great. Thanks, Patrick. Thank, Thank you, you so for having me. You guys are doing awesome stuff. Keep at it, man. All right. Thanks, man. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye.